Well, good evening. Looks like our batteries are bad in that remote. Welcome this evening, Calvary Chapel. Glad you could join us. We are in the book of Nehemiah. You can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3, where we are studying our way through the book. And in chapter 3, what I want to do first is just read through chapter 3. It's very self-explanatory. In chapter 3, Nehemiah documents the Jews who rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. We saw in our previous studies that the Jews in Jerusalem needed to rebuild their wall. God had laid it upon the heart of Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to supervise rebuilding the wall and restoring the city. So with that, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll read our way through chapter 3, and then we'll begin to study in chapter 4. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come before you as a family and study your word together. Lord, on a Wednesday evening, we can be in a place that's warm and safe, and we can be together opening your word and receiving from you in a way where you speak to our hearts and encourage us. And we need encouragement, Lord. May this evening's lessons just help us in our lives, in our work, in our ministries, all the areas of our lives, in our families as well. And may you just take the time that we give to you and use it to make us more like Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start by reading chapter 3. You're going to get a a real survey of all the work that was done as Nehemiah and the Jews were rebuilding the wall. We read there that Elishabib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimah, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, the son of Meshizabal, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Banna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. And the Jashana gate, which means the old gate, essentially, uh, was repaired by Jehoiada, son of Pasea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place and next to them. Repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatea of Gibeon, and Yadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhaiah, one of the goldsmiths repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, and Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section, joining this. Jedidiah, son of Haromaf, made repairs opposite his house. Hanatush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Moab repaired another section, and the tower of the uh, ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, the ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now the valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zanah. They built it, or rebuilt it, and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And they also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now the dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kohasa, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over, and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. And he also repaired the wall of the Pool of Siloam. We're familiar with the Pool of Siloam from the New Testament. By the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him... Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethsur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, and as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites, under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of a half-district of Kelia, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their countrymen under Benui, son of Hanadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kelia. And next to him, Esser, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired the other section, another section, from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle. And next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously 
repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakas, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Masaiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Hanadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner, and Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedaiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, that's the old city where the old city is built, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Imber, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. And next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Now, as we've read through all of those repairs, you might be thinking, well, do I really need to know this? Well, you know, I don't want to skip through it, but I do want to read it because you learn that everyone built the wall and they built it together, and they did this work in such a way where they were building especially by their own homes. And I think that's, that's very important because as we see the sheep gate and then the, the fish gate and the adjoining sections and the old gate or the Jashana gate and then the valley gate and the dung gate, and you go from gate to gate, remember the walls were built, but they needed the gates, and the gates were burned with fire. They needed to repair, rebuild the gates, and rebuild the wall. Then you get to the fountain gate in its adjoining section. You make your way all the way around the city of Jerusalem, essentially, the adjoining sections from above the horse gate, and make your way back to the sheep gate, which is where we started. And so what you have there is you have a circle around the city as the walls are repaired and rebuilt, and each and every place there was a gate, the gate was repaired as well. But I was struck by a few things, and, and, and one of the things is the, the sheer number of people working on this wall. Also, the fact that everyone had a vested interest in rebuilding this wall. Their homes, which they were more than likely not able to live in at this time, because the wall was broken down and its gates burned with fire, everyone was building in the area that would most impact them. And that makes sense. The the place they had a vested interest in repairing, the place that meant the most to them, the place that they were connected to, that was the place they worked. And we're going to see they worked zealously. They worked with all their hearts. Now, that's an important principle in and of itself. And it's why I read through the chapter. Because when we do ministry, when we do a work that God has called us to do, you'll find that to the degree that the work impacts you and your family, you will work zealously. And I think it's an important thing to realize, if you have children and those children come to the church, more than likely you have a vested interest in investing in the children, right? Because your kids are coming to the church. So a lot of our parents are involved in children's ministry because their children are here. That's like building the wall right by your house. That's the place that most dramatically affects you. Now, maybe you're single, or maybe you you like to work with young people, and that's the area of the wall that you want to work on. Or maybe, like the team that is in India right now, you really feel called, you really feel at home when you're out on the mission field ministering to people in foreign countries. Whatever the case may be, each of us have a place on the wall. Each of us have a place in ministry and in our families, and even at our jobs, where we feel we're called to be, and we feel comfortable there. I I think it's important to note that God doesn't necessarily, although he might, necessarily call you to a place of discomfort. I remember the very first missionary I ever met was in the mid-80s, and uh, he was sharing at our church, and he shared how 
missionaries oftentimes hear these stories of people not wanting to go on missions trips because they're afraid that they're going to eat bugs or something like they're going to like Indiana Jones or something you know they're going to have to eat bugs and he made a great point he said you know if God is going to call you to a place where you're going to have to eat bugs he'll give you an appetite and a taste for bugs the, the idea is that where God has called you to be should be a place where you say you know I fit here I fit in here. This has to do with the church you attend. You know, there are many different types of churches, and, and not one right and one wrong necessarily. Many times there, there are churches that stress certain elements of ministry, and others stress different elements of ministry. A lot of times people will come to Calvary Chapel, and they'll say, you know what, I feel comfortable here because... Maybe it's an emphasis on the Word of God. Maybe it's a we're kind of casual. Uh, whatever it is, That's where they fit. I encourage you to seek out the place where you feel you're called to be and be there. Be faithful to the place along the wall, to use that metaphor, that God has called you to be. And it should be a comfortable place. It should be a place you enjoy being. We never really stress trying to get people involved in ministry. We make the opportunity available, and we don't drive people crazy and harass people and annoy people to serve. My wife and I were just talking about it this week. I was observing on Sunday, getting ready for the Christmas play uh, that so many of you were involved in over the high school this year. We're going to be there on December 18th. Our children are going to present the Christmas play, similar to what they did last year, revised and updated, and uh, probably a little bit more elaborate, certainly a larger stage. And uh, they're going to be over there, and then we're going to come back over here, not into the sanctuary, but into the fellowship hall for a time of fellowship, coffee, and tea afterwards. But you know, so many of you have gotten involved in this play. I'm not involved at all, I have to tell you that, because that's, I'm not called to be involved in that, and I, I've got a few other things to do around here. But so many people are involved. I was looking around on Sunday at coffee hour, I'm like, where is everybody? Where, where is everybody? Nobody's down here. So then I went upstairs to get something, and the coffee room upstairs was filled. There was a meeting going on of many of the people who were involved in the play. Set design, costumes, all this types of stuff. I'm like, oh, that's where everybody is. But the thing that, that Michelle and I talked about, we were really so blown away, is how many people are involved in this play? Obviously, the people who are involved, those of you who are involved, feel comfortable there. That's your spot along the wall. And one of the things that we have always stressed here at Calvary Chapel, even at the church that I came from in in Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, I can tell you we always stressed from Ephesians 4 that the leaders are called to equip the body to do the work. We're not called to do the work. We're called to equip the body to do the work. So rather than having like five full-time pastors, we have a number of people who are in full-time ministry, including myself, but that we have a team of volunteers and people who've made their spot along the wall their spot. And they do what they feel God has called them to do. And it's funny, don't tell them they can't do it. (laughs) I wouldn't, but don't tell them because it is their place along the wall, whether it's in the nursery or with the junior high or setting up or breaking down or whatever it is that they have felt called to and volunteered to do, they have made it their own ministry in Christ. And so chapter 3, more than anything else, that's the thing that comes out loud and clear. And they built by their house, and they built by their house. The people were working, but they were allowed to work where they wanted to work. And they were allowed to work where they had a vested interest in the work. And that principle in ministry is significantly important. Let's move on now to chapter 4. Because when a work is going on, I share this several times already in our studies in Nehemiah. When there is a work of God going on and everyone's where they're supposed to be, you can expect that you're going to encounter opposition. Now, Nehemiah and the Jews did encounter opposition to rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And in this chapter, we're going to see three separate attacks, very different from one another, but three separate attacks that their enemies brought against them to try to stop them from building or rebuilding the wall. And we've already talked about it even last week, how the enemy will do whatever he can do to keep you from being in the place where God has called you to be, the work that he's called you to do. He will do his best, and there was no difference when Nehemiah and the Jews were rebuilding the wall. So Nehemiah and the builders, first off, 
had to deal with insults. Look at verses 1 through 3. And by the way, these attacks of the enemy are the same exact attacks you're going to have to deal with today. All right? You probably realize this already, but you're going to see that when we're attacked for our values or our commitment or our faith, it usually comes down to these three things. But let's start with the first. In verse 1 of chapter 4, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, who I can only describe as a toady. You know what a toady is? Remember in The Little Rascals? I think you had Butch. I think he was the, the bully. And then you had the little, little guy next to him. Everything the bully said, he said, yeah. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? What they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So the insults, the ridicule. Sanballat and Tobiah, we've been introduced to them already in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. They were enemies of God. They were enemies of God's people, Israel. They had a vested interest in keeping the Jews from rebuilding their wall. The Jews who had returned to Judea were in trouble and in disgrace, and these men wanted to see them stay in trouble and in disgrace. They wanted the wall to remain broken down and burned with fire. And Sambalat and Tobiah decided, we'll start by ridiculing. They ridiculed the people of Israel. They, they doubted their ability to rebuild the wall. Have you ever been ridiculed, doubted, mocked for wanting to do something for God? Yeah, I can remember when, when I gave my life to the Lord and I, I decided that I was going to get involved in ministry. Many of my coworkers at that time took shots at me. You know, they talked about my past and how I was the furthest thing from a Christian how I hadn't been a Christian long enough to teach the Bible. And they kept pounding me, trying to... I just said, you know what? What I know I can teach. What I don't, I don't. But, you know, there was so much discouragement from certain people. And, and it was just the enemy trying to keep me discouraged. And that's what Nehemiah and the Jews had to deal with. This man, Samballot, was extremely angry. He doubted their ability to rebuild the wall, but he ridiculed them because he was extremely angry. Have you noticed that people that, that sort of hate Christians and conservatives now are very angry? Have you noticed that? Let's not be angry in return, by the way, but there's a lot of anger and hostility. I mean, it's amazing when someone goes, you're a hater, and they're the most hateful people on the planet, right? And you feel like saying, taking a mirror and just saying, yeah, just look at that picture of your face. You realize how hateful you are? extremely angry, and they were extremely angry as Sambala was when he heard that the Jews were rebuilding the wall. Why should he care? But see, there's reasons why they care. They wanted to keep God's people down. He tried to discourage those that were doing the work by publicly mocking them. And that's what we've experienced so much of in these last few years. Someone stands up and they say something, or they, God forbid, post something. I don't suggest you post anything out there in social media. But if you do, uh, a lot of times you're going to get responses from people who's, who make it their mission to ridicule and mock people they disagree with, with anger and hate. I really suggest you do not have a social media presence. I really highly recommend it. Um, if, you, if the Lord has told you otherwise, great, but prepare for the attacks then. So anyway, he tried to discourage them by publicly mocking them, and he questioned their ability to rebuild the wall, doubted that they could complete the work. How does that feel when someone says, oh, you'll never amount to anything? It doesn't feel good. And it can really take us down a peg. You can get a little depressed and discouraged. And then Tobias supported Sam Ballot by mocking the builders and criticizing their work as well. So first, it's just the insults, right? It's just the, the ridiculing. And as the people of Israel began the work that God had called them to do, which we saw in chapter 3, they were beginning the work. Their enemies insulted them. So insults is pretty much the first thing you can expect as a child of God when you step out to serve God to receive. Our enemy will attack anyone who will do God's work. And insults are one of the ways that he attacks. A person 
that does God's work will withstand the insults of God's enemies. You just have to expect it. It's how the enemy works. Listen, ridicule is an attempt to make us feel weak. Ridicule is an attempt to make us feel weak. And insults are an attempt to make us react in the flesh. You see, the devil, what he does through, through individuals, he, he ridicules us, then we, then, then we really feel weak, and then all of a sudden we get the insult, and, and our reaction is one of, you know, we're, we're trying to vindicate or, 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 or prove ourselves or getting in the flesh when we really just need to walk away, as Jesus did. Now, here's the thing. How did Nehemiah respond? We're going to see the lessons are, are, are really, really significant here. Look at verses 4 through 5. Here's what Nehemiah did. It's a prayer. He responded through prayer. It says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. That's exactly how I pray for those that insult us. Oh, pastor, that's, that doesn't seem really kind. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but that's how Nehemiah prayed. David prayed worse. David prayed, let them fall into the trap they dug for me. Let them fall into it. I pray that too, to be honest. But if I look at this and I consider that we have these enemies, I don't pray for them to be successful. You know, when, when uh, this administration came into power, some, some people were shocked that I said, I'm not praying for the success of this administration. People are like, oh my gosh, as a Christian, you have to pray for your government. Yeah, I pray for the government to not succeed in doing ungodly things. Why would I pray for them to succeed? Indeed, they haven't really succeeded much, but what they have succeeded in mostly is evil and wicked. And so as I look at this, I love the way Nehemiah responded. Nehemiah prayed to God. That is the way you respond to insults and ridicule. He prayed to God. He asked God to judge the enemies of the Israelites. He did not respond to their insults. See, that's where a lot of people get themselves in trouble. They go tit for tat on social media, tweet for tweet, or they kind of go back and forth verbally or or posts or email or text. (sighs) Do yourself a favor and just get into the habit of praying when people insult you. Because the next thing that's going to happen after you calm down is God's going to whisper in your ear and say, and don't say anything, please. And you're not going to. And you'll, you'll be the, the, the victor because you will have not fallen into the enemy's trap. So he didn't respond to their insults. He cried out to God instead. You know, I think about, and, and I have to read this because it's just, it's just so helpful. In First Peter... And in chapter 2 and in verse 23, this is what Peter tells us of Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is exactly what we need to do when we're insulted. And you're going to be insulted. You need to know that. As a Christian, as a conservative with moral values in this world, you're going to be insulted. You're going to be called all types of things. Did Jesus not say that all, they'll say all manner of evil against us? I mean, he did. We're surprised when it happens, but we should be prepared. He asked the Lord, Nehemiah asked the Lord to turn their insults back on them and to do to them what God had done to Israel, taking them into captivity for their sins. He's just saying, look, do you know how you judged us? Judge them. Judge them. He asked the Lord to righteously judge them for their sin, for insulting the Jews, rebuilding the wall. For God had called the Jews to rebuild the wall, and Nehemiah to lead that effort. And so he overcame the insults of his enemies by praying to God. Lesson number one. Attack number one, lesson number one. Let's look at attack number two and lesson number two. In verses six through eight, we learn that Nehemiah and the builders were threatened by the enemies of the Israelites. Threatened. You know, when when things started to go crazy in our world a few years ago, um, I realized that we needed to, I mean, I certainly needed to rely on God and not myself. And I was seeing a lot of civil unrest. And I was seeing, you know, people are sitting at a restaurant. They're having their dinner. And somebody comes up and, like, starts 
flipping over the table or touching their food. First of all, I'd kill somebody for touching my food on a good day. That's just the way I am. I'm not saying it's good or godly. Anybody that knows me knows, you don't touch my food, okay? You don't touch my food. So I was thinking about this, and I'm like, Lord, what would I do if one of those protests were taking place and I was sitting at an outside cafe or in a restaurant, people came in and touched my food? And I envisioned all sort of things like steak knives and forks and tables and chairs. And I said, this can't be good. This can't be good. I don't, I don't want to be that person. And so I started studying martial arts. And now, not only can I handle myself, I can offer a level of response. Death, if necessary. Somebody's coming at me with a knife. I, I don't, you know, I'm going to protect my family. I'm going to protect me. Sorry, that, if you don't like that, that's the way it is. I'm not going to let anything happen to anyone I care about. But if it's just kind of a minor disturbance, it doesn't have to be that level. I can dial it back, incapacitation, dislocation. I can do those things. And you know what? I hope I never have to. But I had to start studying this because I needed to get control of my reaction. I needed to be able to scale my reaction and not like be grabbing a fork and stabbing somebody in the eye just because they touched my steak. And I literally, when I called the dojo, told my, my sensei, who's now my sensei, I said, I need help with this. This is something I'm looking for because I don't want to respond in kind. I want to respond the way Jesus would respond. And I knew I didn't have that ability. I didn't have the training. I didn't have the control. And I'm working on it. I really am. That's one of the major reasons I do this. Because I don't want to be that guy that, that overreacts or, or, or brings things, or excites things, or instigates things when it doesn't need to be that way. All right, so, Nehemiah becomes a great example because he knows how to diffuse the situation. He knows how to not bite the hook and fall into the enemy's traps. But let's look at the threatening nature, because insults are one thing. Remember what our, my mom used to tell me, sticks and stones, right? may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But sticks and stones might break my bones. Threatening is kind of like a higher level than just insulting me. It really is. You threaten me, hmm. It depends on the threat, but that's what's about to happen. Look what happened here in verses 6 through 8. So, Nehemiah writes, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. Would you call that progress? I would. Half its height? I mean, it doesn't quite mean they're half done, but they're getting there. They really are getting there. Half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. And we've already talked about why some of those, some of the reasons why that was true. They worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were, not angry, very angry. Very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So now we're talking of not just insults. We're talking about a threat, a physical threat. And you have to be prepared not just to be ridiculed and insulted in the world in which we live for your values, you have to be prepared to deal with physical threats. The number one way in self-defense you avoid a physical threat is don't put yourself in a place where it could happen. Have you ever noticed so many times at 2 o'clock in the morning someone's attacked on the streets of a city somewhere? And I often say to myself, why were they out on the street at 2 o'clock in the morning? Don't be out on the street at 2 o'clock in the morning and you probably will reduce the threat level. Another thing. Many times I'm out training in my backyard and I look around and I think my neighbors must think I'm a little weird or whatever, but my neighbors don't even know I'm there because they're so busy looking at their phones as they walk their dogs. I have one guy, and Michelle saw it out the window, she can validate this, in the summer was walking toward me and I had weapons in my hands and, and he's walking toward me listening to a book on tape and I only knew that because I could hear it and he's looking at his screen and he's walking forward going to walk right into my weapons, me swinging them and all. And I stepped back and stood on the curb, and you would have thought that he'd never even noticed I was there. The number two thing you can do to keep yourself safe in this crazy world is stay alert. Stay alert. 
Look around. You know, do you really need to drive and text? Do you really need to look at your phone while you're in the car? Do you really need to look at your phone while you're on the subway platform? Not a good idea. Look at your phone anywhere in public where someone could be a threat. Just put the stinking phone away until you're in a safe environment. These two things I just told you require no training, but probably will account for 90% of your safety. Now, the other 10% might require some training. But I want to tell you that if you just did that much, it would make a big difference. Obviously, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. But they had to deal with physical threats. So now there is a practical response to physical threats. There always is. And what was this practical response? Well, what they did was threaten them. Let's, let's examine the threat. First of all, we've said it already. The Jews continued rebuilding the wall despite the insults of their enemies. Having reached just about the halfway point, the builders worked with all their heart. Things are going so well. Of course the enemy's not pleased. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites. Now notice the, the group is getting a little larger now of enemies. And the men of Ashdod, those are, Phil, uh, Ashdod, those are Philistines, threatened the people of Israel. They were very angry when they heard that they were rebuilding the wall and getting close to finishing it, closing the gaps. So what did they do? They all came together. They plotted together to attack Jerusalem and cause trouble for the people. Isn't it amazing how enemies come together? Your enemies will come together against you. They may not agree with each other, but they agree in that they don't like you. Well, as the people of Israel continued the work that God had called them to do, the enemies threatened them. They, they expected it. They were prepared for it. They had to be. And brothers and sisters, our enemy, now we're talking spiritually. We're not talking about standing on the platform of the subway, you know, or being out late at night at the mall. But our enemy will attack you. He will attack us, anyone who will continue God's work. You can expect it. And a person that continues God's work will withstand the threats of God's enemies. All kinds of threats. I'll sue you. All kinds of threats. I'll kill you. I'll hurt you. I'll harm you or your family. We've seen it. God's enemies will unite to oppose God's purposes. We can expect it. Jesus saw this in his ministry. Now, threats. Let's talk about what threats are. Threats are an attempt to intimidate us from doing what is right. That's what a threat is. To intimidate you from doing what's right. And a lot of people were threatened over the last couple of years, and many people stopped doing what was right because of threats. I wasn't one of them, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of people I know who stopped doing the right thing, whether it was going to church or just living their life the way they really should because they were threatened. And some of that threatening and intimidation came from our own leaders. Actually, a lot of it did. Violence. Let's talk about what violence is. Violence is an attempt to force us into submission. So you don't succumb to the threat, and then the violence is designed to make you cower and to make you no longer do what's right. Force you into submission. Violence. There was a lot of violence over the... There still is a ton of violence in our culture today. It's getting worse. Again, it's one of the reasons why I train. There's so much violence. You have to be prepared for a level of violence in our culture that you've never had to be prepared for in the past. Just understand. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Just say, when you do a work for God, this is what you're up against, okay? Whether it's on the mission field or in ministry. It's not just the kind of threats from our culture. It's a spiritual threat. And that's what they were dealing with. And we can expect the same. So what did Nehemiah do? How did he respond to this? Look at verse 9. That was attack number 2. Here's lesson number 2. In verse 9, But we prayed. We prayed to our God and, not just prayed, and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now see what he did? He prayed. And you might be saying, well, all you need to do is pray. Well, sometimes you need to be prayerful and careful. Prayerful and careful. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He prayed to God and he protected the people from the threats of the enemies of the Israelites. See, there's a practical element to this. I've talked a little bit about some of that in self-defense. There is a practical element to dealing with the threats of the enemies. You can't just dismiss it. Well, we just prayed. I'm just praying and fasting. And I'm, you know, meanwhile, I'm still looking down at my phone. I'm still in places I shouldn't be. Don't expose yourself to the enemy unnecessarily. So Nehemiah prayed. He wasn't just prayerful. He was careful. I mean, Jesus even said in the garden, right? Watch and pray. 
Watch and pray. Being careful, listen to this, being careful, listen, being careful without being prayerful is pride. It's pride because you think you can take care of yourself. But being prayerful without being careful is presumption. It's thinking, oh, well, I prayed. I don't need to be careful. You need both. And that's what they did. And so he overcame the threats of his enemies by praying to God and by protecting the people. He watched and he prayed. He was prayerful and he was careful. That's lesson number two. Let's look at attack number three. In verses 10 through 12, we're now going to talk a little bit about what happens from within. Because when the attacks from without come, some of us within the body of Christ succumb to those attacks. Some of us become fearful and close our churches. Some of us become intimidated and we don't respond appropriately. And as a result, the rest of us have to deal with that. That becomes an attack from within. Not just attacks from without, but then you have to deal with your own people and them bringing you down because they're, they're fearful. It's, it's like infiltration. It's what happens when parts of the body of Christ succumb to the attacks of the enemy. And then that becomes an attack in and of itself. So let's see what happened. In verses 10 through 12, we read, Meanwhile, so all this is going on, the people in Judah said, and where do you think this idea came from? Who do you think planted this idea in their brains? The people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Wait a minute. They had gotten halfway through. What is this all about? This is that self-doubt that comes in when you listen to the enemy. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. They were inducing fear. And then, here's what happened in verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over. That just basically is an idiom for over and over and over again. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. So fear has taken root in people's hearts. And now that becomes an attack from within. The enemy didn't have to do anything more. The, the, The seeds had already been planted. And now God's people, the Jews, are responding inappropriately. And that's becoming a problem. Are you with me? This is what happens sometimes. See, the people of Judah were intimidated by the threats of the enemies of the Israelites. They were discouraged. This also happens because the builders were getting tired and there were still many obstacles. Have you ever gotten tired? I mean, recently I was looking at the situation in our country and I just said, I'm just so tired of this. Then I prayed and I realized, tired of what? God is still in control. What am I tired of? I'm tired of thinking that I have to be in control. Yeah, I kind of am. God is in control. They were terrified that their enemies would attack the builders and put an end to the work. You know, I can remember as a little kid, you'd watch a movie, right? A scary movie that you shouldn't have been watching or just a movie that scared you as a kid. And then you'd go to bed and you would sit there and think that creature, that monster, the witch from the Wizard of Oz, something is going to get me. There was no reason to believe it. It wasn't even true. It was just a story, but in a child's mind, these fears grow, and then before you know it, they're real. And so many of us have to deal with irrational fear because we've given ourselves over to it, and now, now we're dealing with the fear that's within us. And, and this is one of the attacks that I think we have the hardest time with because it comes from within. It comes from within us. It comes from within the body of Christ, not from without but we still have to deal with it. It's still an attack of the enemy, even though it's not a direct attack. It's indirect. Now, they were hoping that by attacking the builders, or the threat of attacking the builders, that they, the builders, would put an end to the work. And the people were starting to buy into this. And as the people of Israel continued the work that God had called them to do, their own people became intimidated. Now, our enemy will try to intimidate us and all of God's people in order to discourage us from continuing God's work. You see, if the enemy can just get you to be discouraged and you to quit, victory is his. You fail and you brought yourself down. That's an easy win, right? We call that in sports or athletics getting in your own way, right? 
How many times that happens? You know, you, you defeat yourself. You get in your own way. You hand the victory over to the enemy. You forfeit, you might say. And that is one of the ways that the enemy scores victories against us. See, the enemy plants seeds of fear, which bring a harvest of doubt. So fear leads to doubt. And those that listen to the words of the enemy are filled with fear and doubt. And they try to spread that. In fact, they discourage God's work because they believe the words of the enemy are true. Learn this. Jesus said the enemy is a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer and a thief. So when you start to say the things that the devil says are true, you're promoting lies, fake news, if you will. You're actually promoting this this false narrative. What did Nehemiah do with this? This is the third attack, but this one's tricky. This one's rather difficult. Look at verses 13 through 14. Therefore, (laughs) Nehemiah has a response to every situation because he prays about every situation. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome in fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I love it. He put the families together. It's brilliant because what he's saying is, fight for your families. Your families are right here. It's amazing, let's be honest, if somebody threatens your family, what you will do. You might run the other way if they threaten someone you don't like very much. But if they threaten someone you love, the gloves come off. I already shared with you, you know, someone, someone goes after somebody I care about, we, 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 we're going there. Whatever is necessary to protect myself and the people I love will happen, or I will die trying. That is the way it goes. He knew that. Nehemiah placed these men near their families. You think they were a little bit emboldened and encouraged to be alert? And on guard? Of course they were. And he also put them in the places that were most vulnerable. And, and that is so important because that's just practical. Nehemiah further protected the people and he encouraged them to not be afraid. That's the other thing. You have to encourage people. When they're not afraid, encourage them not to be afraid. Oh, pastor, just saying do not be afraid or fear not doesn't make a difference. Really, because God said it an awful lot in his word. Fear not, fear not, do not be afraid. <laughs> How many times have we heard that over and over again? He didn't want them. Nehemiah didn't want them to be afraid of the enemies of the Israelites, so he encouraged them, encouraged them. And that is one of the things he did. He also increased security behind the weakest places in the wall. That's just smart. You know, the most vulnerable places needed to be protected the most. And he did not address their fears and their doubts. He didn't debate with them. He didn't entertain their fears. He reminded them that God is great and awesome. So what I've been doing as I've talked to a number of people over the last couple of days, you know, maybe a little discouraged after the midterms, I I just keep reminding them God is in control. God is great and God is awesome. All right? So what are you worried about exactly? Are you giving yourself over to fear and doubt and worry and anxiety and concern? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and do not be afraid. That was Nehemiah's encouragement and it's a powerful encouragement. He also encouraged them to trust in the Lord and to bravely fight for their families and their homes by putting them by their families and their homes. He encouraged them to remember what they were fighting for. And I want to encourage you to remember what you're fighting for, spiritually speaking. The work of God, salvation in the hearts of those that don't know him, the welfare and well-being of your children and your family and those that you love. That's why being afraid right now is not the appropriate response. Granted, I'm not going into New York City anytime soon, right? And I don't have a cell phone to be distracted by that I can walk down the street looking at or drive with. But I know that I have nothing to fear because God is with me. I'm not going to be stupid, but I'm not going to fear. So, one of the things that we need to remember is that God is awesome. God is great. 
And so Nehemiah overcame the discouragement of their own people by protecting and encouraging the people. See, if he'd gotten out there and said, what's wrong with you? And start smacking people around, that wouldn't have really gotten the job done. He encouraged them. He encouraged them. And so we have three separate attacks and we have three separate lessons. Well, let's wrap up this chapter. In verses 15 through 23, we're going to see how things progressed after those attacks were were dealt with. Look at verses 15. We'll read all the way through verse 23. In verse 15, we read, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, I love that, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. And that's exactly where we belong. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, so they had concealed carry. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. So you see, or to wash, or to relieve themselves. Whatever it was, they had their weapon with them the whole time. Just one little note, one of the beauties of Okinawan karate is I always have my weapons. They're always with me. I have several. But the nice thing about having a way to protect yourself is you can do what God has called you to do without having to worry about it. And then when you have to deal with it, you're prepared to deal with it. So these men didn't let those things get in the way of the work of God. If there's something standing in the way of you doing the work of God, and it's fear-based or anxiety-based, you need to appropriately deal with it. And that's what Nehemiah did. And he didn't just say, don't worry about it. He addressed the problem. He, he, he did something about it, but they didn't stop the work either. Nehemiah and the builders continued rebuilding the wall despite the opposition of the enemies of Israel. And we need to continue to do the things that God has called us to do, regardless of the threats and the intimidation and the fear and all the things we have to deal with as well. Their enemies plotted the attack, and they wanted to attack the builders and put an end to the work that had been exposed. So... They really, they wanted to take them out where they were at their weakest, essentially. They plotted the attack to attack the builders and put an end to the work. And that plot had been exposed. So they were fully aware that Nehemiah had protected and encouraged the people. That is, the enemies were. And God had worked through Nehemiah to frustrate their plans, just simply because they were courageous and brave, essentially. So much of the enemy's plans are thwarted by us just continuing to trust God. The builders all returned to the work of rebuilding the wall. And then Nehemiah smartly, wisely, increased security around the builders as they worked. He had half his men work while the other half stood guard behind the builders. Just smart. Those that carried materials would have been vulnerable, right? Well, they were armed. And those that worked carried their swords. They were armed as well. He had a man ready to sound the trumpet to stand with them. So if they were attacked all the way on the other side of the city, they could sound the trumpet and everyone would make their way over there to protect those who were being attacked. Nehemiah implemented a plan to respond to any attack against the builders as they worked. Now, he recognized that the builders were widely separated. That was one of their vulnerabilities. They were vulnerable to attack. So he would sound the trumpet to direct the people to mount a united defense of the city. This is all just really smart stuff. So a lot of it is just common sense, right? A lot of it's prayer, and a lot of it's common sense. So he encouraged them to trust in the Lord by reminding them that God would fight for them. God had called them to this. God would fight for them. You need to know that, that when you do a work of God, God will fight for you. God doesn't abandon you. 
And the Jews continued rebuilding the wall despite the threat of an attack by their enemies. They just kept doing what God had called them to do. That's what we needed to be doing in these dark days. What God has called us in his word to do. Oh, but pastor, you, you can't do that. These are different times. Really? I don't think so. They remained vigilant by arming half the men with spears while the other half worked. They worked from dawn to dusk to take advantage of the light of day, which makes perfect sense. And Nehemiah and the builders remained vigilant against attack both day and night. They never let their guard down. They had all the men stay inside the city at night to serve as guards by night and workmen by day. And they all remained dressed and armed should there be an attack. See, the scripture talks about us being sober and vigilant, right? Prepared with the armor of God. Because our enemy, the devil, goes about throughout the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You have an enemy, you need to be prepared. And as the people of Israel continued to work and did the work that God had called them to do, they remained vigilant, our enemy as well, will attack us if we do not remain vigilant. You must remain vigilant. You need to be on guard. A person that continues God's work will withstand the attacks of God's enemies. Just expect it. Those that remain vigilant will watch out for one another. You should be watching out for one another. Watch each other's backs. And they will be like soldiers and servants with a, with a trowel to build up and a sword to contend. The trowel represents, you know, we're building, but... The sword is how we contend. And the sword is the word of God in the spirit realm. Listen, God has a purpose in opposition. You might be wondering why there's so much opposition to good and godly principles right now. Why is there so much opposition to what's right? Well, God has a purpose in opposition. You know, it's not just the walls that protect us. It's the building of the walls that keeps us safe and secure. As we build, we're built up. As we build, we're built up. We learn prayerfulness, watchfulness, faithfulness, and vigilance. And the only way we learn that is through opposition. You know, when you study martial arts, the the, the way that you learn how to protect yourself is by being attacked. You have to respond. You have to, over and over again, respond to an attack. So what God is allowing us to experience is attack so that we can grow, that we can become strong. These are the key ingredients for being victorious over our enemies. So God is really just training us and conditioning us for the fight. So the next time I hear somebody throw up their hands and say, all is lost, I'm going to remind them of Nehemiah. They need to trust God. We need to trust God because God will fight for us. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study, and I pray that each and every one of us, myself included, Would you stay encouraged to do what you've called us to do? To be prayerful, to be careful, to recognize the attacks of the enemies that we have in our lives and the spiritual enemies that would want to stop the things that you're doing in and through us. Help us to recognize these things, to trust you, and to look to you, to stay alert and be watchful and prayerful, that we might see the victory in our lives and in our lifetime. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.